To me, electronic music, there's, there's five things you can do basically with a computer, right? There's five things. It's crazy. But like when it comes down to it, that's it. So it's just understanding what those five things are. And then understanding that all the complicated and difficult things that you can do with a computer come out of those five things. So I'd like to start think that I start from the basics and, and move up. I think sometimes I, yeah, sometimes the, the basics are, are complicated too. I want you to explain those five things, but first... Sure, is the power not working? Well, it's working for the mixer, which is strange. Beautiful. Yeah, who knows? Electricity. No, I don't understand that. That you don't understand? No. You never read up on like Tesla? Sure. I mean, I took an electricity class in, uh, in high school. The teacher in the class had the, our final project was to put this circuit together. Everyone had their own circuit. And this, this is amazing, amazing teaching, to be honest. Uh, when you get done, the circuit basically zaps you. Like it, you, you basically have a capacitor that, that loads up and then, and then uh, discharges at you. Wait, that's how you know you got an A. That's well. That was the thing. Like I got done first, and boom, it scared the crap out of me. But he knew that was going to happen. He knew that was going to happen. That was his. That was his test. Which I think was that's pretty funny. I, th- I think that's pretty good for a for a high school electricity class. When you get done, you get zapped by electricity. So it's like your romance with like electricity and electronic music, and like all of like the the whole path that led you to now. Like it started. It started literally in high school. Like at a young age, getting zapped. Kind of. I mean, I was. I was a total nerd in high school, but not not a music nerd. I was actually a computer programming nerd and a math nerd. So I actually went to college as a computer science major and hadn't really studied music at all. But at age 12 and 13, I would come home after school each day and sit down at the computer and like play around with it and program it and, uh, you know, fool around with DOS and make it do crazy things. And then play some video games and stuff too, of course. So that's what I, my first obsession was. And then my course of my undergrad was, I started doing music and I got really into that. Why did you start doing music? I had this weird experience. Well, I decided at some time during my senior year of high school that I wanted to take piano lessons. And I told my mother this and she thought it was crazy. And so that didn't happen. But then my first semester of college, I did. um, And I got really, I fell really in love with it. I mean, I still can't play the piano to save my life, but I started at 17. Yeah. I got like, I have like competency, like, sure. And, but that's it. And, but if you put me in front of an audience, it's just, no, it's not. And it, and it looks awful too. It's just like gnarled. It looks like I have arthritis when I play piano. Yeah. It feels, it doesn't, it's not, I don't play the piano in front of people. Uh, yes. I mean, it took seven years of piano lessons. I still can't play the darn thing. Yeah, so I, then I got really, I got really into it, and was also doing a computer science degree. In fact, didn't I got a minor in computer science and a major in music? Um, but it wasn't really one of the things that happened in my undergrad, which was amazing, was uh, they bought a Pro Tools system for my school, and my teacher at the time he was about to retire, and and um, I don't think he knew how to put it together, and he basically just gave me it and said, "You you figure it out, and you then you get to play with it," because there was nobody else that would would play with it. 
and there was no one else that had the technical skills to play with it. So basically, they gave me a uh, Pro Tools system and said, you figure out how it works. So I installed it and set it up and got it working. And basically, you know, just because of the situation, I set up my first studio. And then I just lived in that studio for three years. It was like a slow transition to that to just... Because now you're a composer. Right. You know, you're not... I mean, what do you consider yourself? Yeah, I consider myself a composer and improviser. So, I mean, I do a lot of improvisation. And um, yeah, that's a big part of what I do too. You know, I program a computer to help me compose. Sometimes I program a computer to help me compose electronic music. Sometimes I program it to help me write notes. And sometimes I I don't. I just write notes. But it's all there for sound creation. For a year after my undergrad, I I worked as a computer programmer for a job. And um, I am very grateful that I did that because I learned that's where I learned actually how to program the computer but I really hated it as a job I love it as part of what I do creatively why do you hate it as a job um I mean I think if you talk to people who um do music as a jobs sometimes they say well I do music all day like when I get home I don't want to listen to it right so basically do music as a job and like I don't really enjoy it anymore. Well, as a programmer, when I did it as a job, I would get home and I I couldn't write music. All I could think about was programming and I was enjoying it, but it wasn't being very creative. Now, if I had, I I worked, I'll fill you in on something else, is that I worked as a military software programmer. Whoa. Yeah, so that's a different... Wait, wait, like... Yeah. Well, we we made like a, a tactical battlefield display. And so, like, it would show the battlefield and it would show, like, where the good guys were and where the bad guys were. And so it wasn't very good. And in fact, I don't think the U.S. military ever used it outside of testing. But it is what I did. And it, and that made it not very enjoyable. Because how long did you How long did you do that for? I just did it for a year. I couldn't. Where did you do it? Uh, at a company in San Jose, California. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I was before we turned the mics on. We were talking about politics a little sure. bit, and um, I mean, you seem to be like a very kind of politically aware guy. Do you have any like moral reservations about like doing working for the military like that? Sure. Um, you know, when I got out of college, I had basically I, I went to college in Santa Clara, California, at Santa Clara University, and I got out of college, and uh, my college present for graduating was a trip to Europe. I got a trip to Europe, right? So I went to Europe for two months. It was great. That's what Um, the generic, like the generic, totally. You know, that actually comes from an English tradition of after um, high school, they usually do it. Yeah. After high school, they go. And that's why you see all these like stack. That's like the origin of the original stag party of like British people getting drunk and having sex with like prostitutes. But even before that, like in the 19th century, it was a more sophisticated go out and get cultured. I doubt thing. it was more sophisticated, but yes, they would go out and get cultured. Yeah. But yeah, so so I did that. And what happened was during those two months, the, the dot-com bubble burst. I mean, maybe not literally during those two months, but it was it was pretty much, I remember being in college for four years and all I wanted to do when I graduated was get a wait, waiting job at waiting tables and then be a composer and just work on composing because I I wasn't going to grad school. I was definitely going to work. So the problem was when I came back from Europe, I moved back to California and I remember the Chili's down the street from from Santa Clara uh, had had a now hiring sign for four years of college and that now hiring sign was gone. And because the dot-com bubble burst, everyone who was in tech took up all the jobs. Like I wanted just a 
waiting job, you know, but th- those jobs were gone because all the tech people moved to those jobs because the, the, there were no jobs. Holy shit. And yeah, so the whole thing imploded basically overnight. And so I had worked at this company as an intern and they rehired me as a full-time employee. Yeah, I mean, definitely I did not feel like I was going into my job every day and doing good for the world. I was going into my job every day and, and making money. And in the end, that's probably why I stopped doing it. I, I think if I had if I'd started working for a company like... I don't know, a startup company or something. I, it would have been more interesting and I might have kept doing it. But in a way, I'm glad I ended up working for this military company because I stopped and took all that knowledge that I learned in that year and started applying it to music, which um, I still apply every day. Well, I'm so curious about that. I mean, what's the atmosphere like working at this yeah, the company, atmos- what are the what are the people like there? What did you know, like what do they think? Is it also just a job for them? Yes, very much so. And, and, you know, coming out of college, I was very, and I still am a very, you know, happy-go-lucky guy. And showing up to uh, an office every day where your coworkers are, not all of them, but a lot of them are completely dead to the world and not very happy about their job, not very happy about living. And, um, and I'm, I'm generalizing because they're not all like that. But, yeah, yeah. you know, when you go in, you say hi to the guy in the cubicle next to you and he just barely looks up at you and mutters it's pretty that gets to you pretty quickly and um as a you know young 22 year old who was really enthusiastic about the world i found that pretty yeah i didn't want to be part of that so okay so that ends that ends and then what happens after that so um i quit that job because i got into the university of texas to do my master's degree in music and i chose university of texas because uh, basically they have a great electronic music program and I, I mean i'm pretty much learned everything i know about electronic music i learned there yeah, so I spent three years at the University of Texas. It was great. Studied with this guy, Russell Pinkston, who um, taught me everything there is to know about computer music. And once you know those things, then I've been applying them ever since and getting to know them better. I mean, you can't... These are lifelong things to learn. When did you learn how to notate? Do you feel like you had to play a certain amount of catch-up? Like, for example, like I feel like if I were to start getting into electronic music, I would be like the opposite of you, where mm-hmm. I started with instruments and notating something on a page, working with notes and everything like that. And that's where like my intuition is. Right. And me having to learn kind of about all these other things, uh, it was it felt like catch up. Do you feel like you had to do that? Like when did you start when did you start writing down notes on the page? Well I started writing down notes as soon as I started composing, which was basically my freshman year of college. Um and so I think, you're like nineteen. Sure, nineteen years old, yeah. And I think that I kind of knew notation. Like, I, you know, I learned it as a kid, kind of like in school. You know, we had music class. I couldn't really read music very well. And in, in fact, I continued to not, not read music entirely. You know, I'm, I'm no Eric Wubbles, let's put it that way. Yeah, but you're um, pretty... You're, <laughs> so, I love how I, I'm interviewing him the other day. He, he, he's a beast at... Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he could sit down and play anything, and I could sit down and... You know, play one note. Yeah, so so notation's always been a struggle for me, but but also I, I think that, that that's good in a way because it, it forces me to think about sound and because I'm thinking about sound as like an electronic musician or even, you know, and thinking about like electronic sounds, then you think, okay, well, how, how would a violin play that? And you think about how the violin would play that and then you figure out a notation to work that. And what that allows, I think, someone like me to do is is notation is always... 
I think if, if I grew up with notation, I wouldn't be as easily swayed in the direction of different kinds of notation. So like, you know, if I want to portray different kinds of information, you can't use traditional notation because actually putting notes on a page is difficult for me. Then I think it pushes me in other into other notation systems pretty quickly. I, I definitely I have to, I have to think harder about the sound of something, and it, it it affects my process. Like usually I'll I won't write anything for the first two two months. I'm technically writing it because I'm just trying to find the sound, and then usually I'll write it in two weeks. Like recently I just finished a piece and took two months of just like banging my head against the wall and then then the notes just came out because... and, it, and it also it also lets you avoid the bullshit that comes along with notation too especially in academia this is kind mm-hmm. of a rant that i do yes like, i had a lot of people like especially in academia it becomes about the relationship between symbols on a page and the elegance of that and it becomes more about creating a document that has a poetry to it rather than a sound that is effective and that has the poetry and that's where it is. So it's good that you're working with the sound first and then notating it is just the how you pragmatically communicate that with the people who you want to replicate that sound with. Right. I mean, yeah, definitely I am trying to portray a sound world that is going to be perceived. And and the opposite of that, which happens a lot, uh, especially... Um, like, how could you not make that's like nobody? It's very rare that people make that statements, but like, right. duh, of course, you, of course, like, that's, of course. Like, how is that not the goal? How, why, how, why do people have other goals besides like you, that? You, you would yeah. think so, but I mean, so you know, I mean, I'm not gonna if if somebody else wants to focus on the poetics of the of the score, then I mean, that's fine. It's not what I want to do, but I'm not gonna say anyone else should do that. Um, I I think the problem happens when people get a little bit too much street cred for having a fancy looking score yeah. rather than having a good sounding piece. Yeah. And that is, that is a different thing. Now there are fancy looking scores that sound great and that's really, but it has nothing to do with the fanciness of the score for me. No. Yeah. It's just that, okay, you created a nice little document that's pretty for people to look at, but yeah. it's almost, it's almost arbitrary. I do me. think that there's, there's an element of the relationship though with the score and the performer where if you make your score too simple, I've, I've definitely had this happen, where uh, if you make the score too simple or too uh, straightforward, then the performer won't put as much time into it. Or if you don't make it beautiful, I do think that it is very meaningful to make your score look beautiful. Because if you make it look beautiful and then somebody looks at it and they go, oh, that's beautiful, I'm going to put some time into it too. So I think there's an element of that that I, I agree with. I mean, st- you know, like in late Stockhausen scores, he was writing things in seven colors. It it makes almost no sense that they're in seven colors, but they are beautiful, and people look at it and go, "Oh, that's beautiful." And now I want to spend some time with it. But aren't you kind of having to trick the performer then into like that's almost a trick, isn't it? Yes. Like you have to distract them, not even distract them, but uh, you have to sell them the idea that there's something there, and sometimes it's very possible that the problem will arise that you're selling them something and nothing's there. Right. You know, yeah. So I mean, I've, seen, I've, just, I've so, watched it happen. Yeah. Sure. Everybody's um, watched that happen. Yeah, Everybody sat through those performances and it's you know, very disappointing. Yeah. I mean, in the end, I think that, that no matter who you are, if you're doing good music, there's an element. And now I'm, I'm going to disagree with myself the moment I say this, but if you're doing meaningful music, there's 
something about the music that comes out that is unknown to you in the time of writing. Like you're writing something and there's going to be some some kind of surprises during performance. And, and I think that the, that surprise is going to be different for me than Wolfgang Riem, right? Like that guy just can sit down and write and it probably he's, he's very much hearing exactly what what's going on in the page in his head. But there's probably other things to him that are surprising and shocking. And so that's important too. And it's it would be nice to be in that situation in a performance where you something comes out that you didn't expect. And, and I think that's really exciting. So, I mean, maybe there's more of that when you just make a crazy looking score that, uh, that doesn't make too much sense. I'm not sure if my argument made any sense right there, but no, that made sense. But well, first of all, you said you were going to disagree with yourself right away. So yeah, disagree with yourself. I, I disagree with myself. Okay. <laughs> with no explanation. I'm an idiot. Yeah. I mean, I was saying that like, you know, there's an element of mystery in each of the scores, but I think maybe for some people there isn't an element of mystery Yeah, and uh, they just can just sit down and write it. For me, I, there's always, I mean, I, I I love that. I love that. I love going to the, the first rehearsal and being like, oh, oh yeah, that chord. I had no idea the bass clarinet was going to sound like that in that chord. So that that's exciting for me. Yeah, but that might also be the most boring looking thing you'd never imagine on the score. Right. Like the bass like the bass clarinet for some reason is playing into a certain register that's blended with an oboe that goes below it where technically it should go above it. Absolutely. And for that reason, but it you can't tell from the immediacy of it. It's not superficially there. You right. just have to you just have to investigate these random kind of boring things on the page to figure that out. Sure. I mean, look yeah. at all of late Feldman, right? All of late Feldman. I, I went and saw neither last year. It was played at the um, New York city opera and it was, it was unbelievable. And New York city see, opera did that. New York city opera did it. And yeah. I mean, they'll probably never do something like that again, but it was, it was amazing. And you know, you'd be hearing the sound and you're like, what is that sound? You know, it's a full orchestra. And then you look down and you're like, try to figure out what the sound is in the pit. And you, you know, it's a bass clarinet and a, and a glockenspiel, you know, on the page, that actually looks stupid because it looks like quarter notes probably in each instrument playing in looks like banal registers, but like the bass clarinet is playing above the glockenspiel or something like that, and it just sounds crazy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he's the king of it. I mean, you know, you look at like um, triadic memories or something. It's like that, three pages, you know. I mean, you open it up and you, you, it, looks like, it looks like nothing, and, and when you hear it, it's two hours long, and every second is just amazing. Yeah, that's what it, he's almost my favorite example of and people are going to disagree with me and say, oh, his scores are beautiful. And maybe his like sloppy handwriting is unique. Yeah. But once you put that down in a like notation program or you copy it out neat, his scores are the dumbest looking things you've ever seen. Absolutely. And it doesn't, ma- and it doesn't matter for him. Like, yeah, I agree. So after you went to Texas. Yeah. So I went to Texas and I, and I really learned a lot about digital signal processing and about composing. I mean, just I wrote a lot of acoustic music, too, when I was there. Um, and I left there and I went to England um, and I was going to do my doctorate at the University of Birmingham in England. And I ended up spending a year there and also learned a ton. Um, but I figured out it was the most difficult year of my life. And yeah, really, really painful personally and uh, musically and artistically. But one of the, mostly because I, I really think I made a mistake in going there. And when you make a huge mistake, it really helps you figure out who you are. So, what happened? Well, I, I, I mean, I went there and I thought I wanted to be electro- electronic composer, right? Electronic musician. And I thought that's what, what that meant was being a tape composer, being like a fixed media composer, right? And that's what they do really well. And they do it really well. Um, I don't know if you know Helena Goth. Do you know her? She's no, a, I'm dumb. Okay. English composer uh, who was living in Berlin for a long time. And now lives in Portugal, but uh, outstanding. I mean, they're just so good at that. 
about at that fixed media thing. And I thought I wanted to do that. And what happened was I got there and I realized I didn't want to do that. In fact, I realized I wanted to write for instruments and I wanted to write for electronics, live electronics with instruments. And that's not what they do. And so even though we did a lot of that while I was there, I, I it became clear that like, for instance, I wrote a piece for piano and tape and I realized that I would probably never have it played there. And so I was like, okay, if, if this is the music I want to be writing, then this is not where I need to be. And also uh, ended up writing a piece for guitar and live electronics, which became kind of the focus of like what's been the rest of my electronics kind of career, which is um, I figured out that I, I wanted to have an electronics setup where it would change with every time I played it. And so while this year was very difficult, uh, what I learned was, you know, who I wanted to be, which was this live electronics guy. Did you figure that out immediately? Like as soon as you got there, you're like, oh shit, this isn't for me. Absolutely. And then, so why didn't you bounce? Um, because I had committed myself to it. I mean, I, I did end up bouncing. I ended up leaving in March and I didn't really even finish a year, but I did stick it out for a while. Actually, it was amazing. I went to a while I was there, I mean, I was having a really hard time just personally. And uh, I went to this amazing shrink in England. And I was just like, I really don't like it here, blah, blah, blah. And she's just like, well, then leave. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> like, you know, I thought she was going to talk me through it. But no, she told me what I should do, which was leave. And then I did. And it was, it was a good thing. What happened? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Do you want to go there right now? Sure. Like, what, okay. Yeah, what happened? What happened personally? Oh well, personally, I mean, you know, I was dating this girl in in Texas. You know, I was a you know idiotic twenty uh, six year old, and I did not realize I was in love. And so I was like, okay, I can move to England. And so there was that emotional trauma that uh, you know break that occurred, and then combined with but you broke it off to move to England. Yeah. I think when you're, you know, I mean, 26 isn't that young, but I was still pretty stupid. And you you don't realize that, like, well, how important those things are to you. And, you know, I was really focused on career, and I didn't realize that that would be that effective, that um, affecting to me. It, would, it wouldn't, it would be that depressing to move, move away from someone you loved. And so um, I did that. And that, so that was, number one, I just was already in a bad place emotionally. And then, you know, England is not the... Um, most chipper place in the world. I mean, it's really dark. It's really gray. It rains every day. And when you're already depressed, well, if you add those things onto it, then it's pretty, it's pretty rough. And plus, you know, I love my English friends. They're some of my best friends in the world. They're probably gonna be mad at me if they hear this, but like, you know, the English don't want to be happy. And so they kind of like wallow in their sadness. Why don't and they want to, why don't I they want to be happy? It's just part of the deal. And, you know, they just kind of, you know, wallow in their depression. And, and, and I, like at the time I did too, because I was so down already. So that just made everything worse. I mean, especially, you know, also, you know, you wake up in the morning and uh, it's actually sunny out. It's, oh, it's sunny out. Oh my goodness. I'm going to go outside and go for a walk. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to go through the park. Oh, I can't wait for this. Like, you, you, you know, you get dressed, you know, look down, tie your shoes, look up and it's raining. Oh, fuck. You know. Okay. So England sucked. I wouldn't say it sucked, but it was yeah, it was a bad time for me. I'm not gonna say England sucked. It, That's what I, I meant. That was I the implication when I yeah. was in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had to leave, and I did leave, and uh, and then I during that year I applied to Columbia and got into Columbia. So I moved back to the U.S. in March of that year, and actually spent a good time, a good amount of time in New Orleans, which was just exactly. I had this weird thing when I was in when I was in England. I was I got really obsessed with like wearing like cowboy shirts and like 
cowboy belt buckle and like listening to like American like country rock or not country but like rock that's very countryish like Wilco or something like that you know wow. you uh you really missed your girlfriend from Texas oh, it was I really guess. bad yeah, yeah. and so I moved back and I moved to New Orleans which was great I mean New Orleans isn't even part of this country either so the, that's like the extreme opposite of England you know uh it's the uh, they say it's the uh, capital of the Caribbean, not the southernmost tip of the U.S., um, and that makes a lot of sense. So I, I had a great time there, and it was exactly what I needed. Came back, like worked a waiting job, and uh, composed every morning, and then worked at night, and then rode my bike around New Orleans. And how long did you do that for? Just three months. It's like amazing, like three months between moving back and coming come to New York. So. I would like to do that longer, actually. That would be amazing, but now I'm too old. <laughs> I'm just, what do you mean you're too old? Too right. old. <laughs> would you ever do that, though? Because that's because it's a I really always, good question. Yeah, yeah, I think I think one of my like I, I hate the fact that I won't do certain things because I feel like I'm above it at this point. Like I don't think I could take a waiting job. I could take a waiting job, but sometimes I'm like. I don't know. That would be like a defeat for me somehow. Mm. But then sometimes I'm like, "What the hell's my problem?" That's such a that's well, such a elitist dick you're move. Saying you're and doing... I don't look down on waiters no. like, "Oh, you you know, I'm you know more educated." Blah 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 blah. But it's just I got trained for my vocation. Yeah, I worked really hard on it. I'd like to I like to think that I'm working towards something original, and that's where my time is spent. Uh-huh. And everything that I do, even if it's earning money, doing stupid copy work thing or something like that, is part of my expertise, and right. that's what I do. And I shouldn't not do that in order to earn money and somehow not doing that is a defeat. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd rather wait tables five days a week than copy music two days a week. I don't mind it and I hate copy work. So, so you know, I'd, I would totally, if like somebody gave me a waiting job right now, I'd do it. The thing that I couldn't do or at least I don't want to do is that like I've worked, what I've, what I've worked really hard at in the last six years being in New York is balancing my time between being a composer and being a performer and being an improviser. And the issue is that I don't think I could go somewhere else or, or to a scene which doesn't have that for too long because my improv improvising is not solo. I'm always playing with other people and I need, I need to play with other people and I want to play with other people. In fact, like even as a composer, I'm always collaborating and that would be the thing where I couldn't really, I don't think I could move to New Orleans at this point because even though there's, you know, it's a city of musicians and in fact some great, some outstanding musicians, I, I, uh, I don't think I could move there cause they're not the kind of musicians that are going to make, want to make weird improv music with me. Whereas here that exists and, and I'm able to do that. So I would much rather be here I would I would definitely do the waiting job. I just would do it here and continue to do the improv stuff. Because- yeah, but that's different because that's there's a difference between saying I'm not interested in doing a waiting job because I'm above that and then doing the waiting job but also doing what you want to do. Right. And also saying I'm in a place where I can't do what I want to do. Oh, yeah. You I don't want to I mean? be in a place where I can't do what I want to do. But, that sounds uh, horrible. But good for you. I always feel like that's a thing I have to like get over. This always comes up with me because maybe I think about it too much is like how the hell – like one of the things you you can read about all these things about musicians, right? And like all of our heroes, but like you never hear like, how did John Coltrane make a living? Was it playing the saxophone? Because like you, these guys like Miles, like went to Europe not many times to play. Right. And like now jazz dudes, that's how they make their living is they, they go and tour Europe. Right. But like they don't make a living here in New York. Now these guys didn't really leave 
And like you listen to these live recordings of Coltrane playing in Harlem or whatever, and there's like five people in the audience just like for us. So they weren't making their living doing that. What was it? You know, I, like I get, I don't know. I'd like to know what that is. So, so like we think about that a lot now. You and I maybe think about that a lot because how how do you do it? Are you sure they weren't making? I don't know. Living? I have no idea. John Coltrane. Well, must maybe have he been, was. Maybe yeah. he was. I mean, you know, like like John Cage. That's a total. You know, I read Begin Again last year, and and it's like, oh, okay, it makes sense. His parents supported him until he was in his forties or fifties or something. Really? Yeah. You know, I mean, like he got like weird and like you know the the his his uh, apartment in or his house in Stony Point. It's like some guy just bought the land and built houses for them. Like, that's not going to happen to you or me. So, like... Okay, so you're slowly going through your biography. Sure, which I is like Which this. is, yeah, which is amazing because you're not... How old are you? I'm 33. Okay, so you've been to a lot of places. Yeah, I've been yeah, to a lot yeah. of places, which is actually, I mean, you know... I remember when I was in when I was in California doing my undergrad. One of the best things one of my teachers said to me, I was, I was thinking about going to uh, CalArts for my master's degree. And... Uh, which I think would have been really bad for me. My teacher was like, you know, just California composers just tend to stay in California. You should get out of California. You should go to Texas. And that was the best advice anyone could have given me. And it, and I think doing that once made me do it multiple times. Also growing up in New Hampshire and then going to co- college in California, like you can't really move that much further from home. And, um, and that was, that was good. Obviously you can move further from home culturally. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, if you go to france or something that's much different or but like within the yeah within the u.s that's as far as you can go so i think that's encouraged me to go to lots of different places and and what that's actually done for me is learning you know how people do things drastically differently in different places i mean people making electronic music in the midwest is very different than people making electronic music in new york even though the tools are technically the same, the focus of the music is very different. And just knowing that and having experienced all that, then you can figure out what your thing is by knowing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that I always think about is like if you start making electronic music and you're just using Max or Super Collider or some programming language, you might think that electronic music is about the programming language. And I think that a lot of people go down that, that road because they start learning like how to code and all of a sudden it becomes about the code. And the thing is, it's not about the code at all. It's about the sounds that come out. And so I started learning basically music concrete. I started learning, you know, tape music. That's where I started with electronic music. And tape music is all about the sounds. It's all, it's all about getting the best sounding sounds and, and layering them in really interesting ways. So, when I'm going down the road of making a new processing patch or something, it is very easy to still get entwined with that problem of, oh, I'm trying to make this complicated patch. When in fact, I always have to catch myself and go, I'm like, no, I need to make this sound good. So um, that's one of the, I think for me, was has been the one of the best um, lessons is having been in this kind of one way of thinking and then coming to a place like New York where it's like, nobody does tape music here. Why would you do tape music here? You can't find two speakers that that match. Actually, when I left Birmingham, John T. Harrison, who I have unbelievable respect for as a composer and musician, said, in New York, you're not going to be able to find one pair of matched speakers, never mind the 78 or whatever that they have there. And I realized that I don't really care about that, but I still want it to sound good. And so, um, so I think it's a combination of this New York mentality of being able to play in a grungy room, grungy basement in Bushwick, but also trying to make things sound as good as possible in those situations. You you just said it's not about the program. Yes. 
and by program you mean like max MSP. i mean w- sure whatever i'm pulling stuff out of my butt because i don't know about it right but do you feel like those are almost and this is just a a guess right now but do you feel like those are almost schools of thought i'm trying to compare it to acoustic music where there's a certain way french well, people approach the quote spectral technique right there's a certain way it's almost like Instead of a school of thought and a methodology that you come with, you know, analyzing and making music on the acoustic level, it's also can be just like a program you believe produces the best result and that and you're loyal to that program. I don't I think I lost you at the end. What do you mean a program that produces the best result? Like people like, give me an example of a programming. Sure. Program. I use Super Collider. I love it. I think it produces the best result. Are there a group of people who say, I love Super Collider, I think it produces the best result, and because of that, there's a Super Collider style that the program tends to lean towards? Like just yes like there's no. a yes spectral. No. Yeah. So uh the the program itself, those like programs like Max and Super Collider are open enough so that if you really know what you're doing, then you can make it sound like you. But they do have they do lead you in certain directions. So like you know, just like um, using Finale versus writing with pen and paper leads you in certain directions. It pushes you to do certain things. So like Super Collider is a code based language that very easily produces a large number of of sound producing objects. Max is the opposite. Max is a box and and wire based language that actually doesn't easily produce lots of sound based objects. So um, if you a lot of people who use Super Collider have these big washy like soupy sounds which i love and i have lots of those and people who use max have these very contained sounds and somebody who uses ableton live might have it really works well with a kind of a grid like a meter like a beat and so most people who who make music with a beat use ableton live so uh but also those programs also push you in those directions so yeah i mean it, it absolutely creates a sound world in in similar way to like uh, complexity. Exactly, that's what that, I mean. But like, like sometimes I'll sit down and I'll be like, "Oh God!" Another complexity composer. It sounds like every other complexity piece because he's because he's completely bought into the blah 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 blah. Right. And and be, and because of that, now I'm bored. And this composer is you know generic and is being pushed in an aesthetic direction that he's not even aware of that he's being pushed just because of like the camp that he's with. And you're saying that there is a super collider or max msp or ableton live version of that yeah, actually like, you know oh, i don't cheesy i see that ableton in live. ableton and maybe i see it in the worlds that are furthest from me and in my own world i can't see it like so i'm going to say like i see that in ableton and the other world i see it in is kind of like the hardware hacker world where there's like you know there's only so many ways to like hack a, a speak and spell um i like i for some reason, I, I feel like those pieces tend to be there's a pretty narrow area of that you can and and I'm I'm gonna get a lot of shit for this. But if any, if no anyone listens, that, like my good. mom is gonna give you shit good. for this. I, when I, she I hears like, this. Well, somebody heard it, they might give you shit for it. But like those worlds are tiny. That's a tiny sound world that you can even explore. And so like I tend to think a lot of those hacky pieces sound the same. And w- what I think is especially funny about it is that it's like the hip thing to do. So people don't end up exploring programming as much as I think they could actually. It's like the hip thing to hack. I think so. I think like in, in the in the electronic music world, like the hip thing is to have your thing as lo-fi as possible. I mean, I definitely heard albums of the last couple of years uh, in even just the like New York improvised music world where you hear this album and you're like, well, that album sounds 
awful. That album sounds like it was recorded by like a, a mini disc recorder in like a, a garage. And then you find out that it's like a $10,000 production and that they tried to make it sound awful because like that's the hip thing is to make it sound like crap. That's that's if I were to have a pet peeve, that would be it in the electronic music slash indie music world. What do you mean by hack? What do like mean by breaking hack? into a program and using it the way it's not supposed no, to be No, not program, more, more hardware, hardware stuff. So like, you know, uh, using like cassette decks and um, and like mixer feedback kind of stuff. Okay. Which I, yeah. I love that music. So don't I'm not I don't want to poop on it. But I, I also think that like there's only so much you can do with it. I'll eat my words on that. Why wouldn't you doing it one day? Yeah, when I, like next week, when I'm like, <laughs> I've thrown out my program that I've been working on for eight years, and I'm only going to use cassette decks. And, but I listen uh, to your shit; it's pretty consistent. So yeah, I mean, like, I mean, not like every piece sounds the same. He's repeating himself, but it has an. Aesthetic. You have like you, yeah, it, it has an aesthetic, and it doesn't change dramatically from piece to piece from right. what I've heard, like on your website and like the album you sent me. So. Yeah. That I mean, but that's that's why I made that album too, is because I feel like that the, there's the six years of music that where that happened, and before that it didn't happen. That spans six years. Yeah, that's all. That's written between 2006 and 2012. Okay, so that means you were 27 when you started it. Yep. Yeah. The first piece is the that I wrote was the solo cello piece that Jesse Moreno played, and then the last piece was Machine Language, which um, was written for Wedding Ensemble, and those pieces basically. Yeah, six years. But I also th- I think that there that's why I wanted to make an album because I felt like for some reason in those six years I had this really tight aesthetic, which I th- I don't know might change. But before that, it's like well, I was kind of just kind of floating around for a while. Totally. So so you're saying that it started it started with the Jesse piece, and then it's been yeah. more or less me being consistent, maybe tweaking and getting better, but. The same, this is what I want to do. I know that I'm heading towards this point B from point A, and I'm confident enough of what point B is that it's not going to move by the time yeah. I get there. Yeah, and what I feel is that I basically spent six years writing you know, seven to 14-minute long pieces that had a very clear aesthetic unity to them and that like maybe right now, like the piece I just wrote is 25 minutes and I haven't written a 25 minute piece ever. So maybe I want to start changing some things or, or looking at different, like, you know, that that's what Feldman did. He started just writing longer pieces and exploring that idea um, or exploring pieces that maybe aren't so composed. Like this piece that I just wrote is far less composed than anything on that album. When you, like far less concretely put down on paper. Yeah, there's some like, things on the paper and there's some things that, that aren't. And and because I know the players to an extent pretty well, I, I feel like I can do that. Describe the aesthetic of this album. I mean, I know that's kind of like an impossible, annoying question. Yes. And it also kind of sounds like a plug now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, what the, you know, what the hell? Why what do you not? mean by plug? Like... Go buy the new album out October first. Sure, know? I'd love I'd love you to. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean the aesthetic is most of the pieces are pretty static. One of my favorite things to do, or my favorite music, like I love Lamont Young, I love Alvin Lucier, Tony Conrad. I love these guys that can find these like little tiny moments of sound that don't find themselves in most pieces. And then they can make an entire piece out of this little moment, this little magical 
cell. Yeah. So for Avalanche, say, for example, it's like two sound waves that are slowly getting out of sync. And then you hear Absolutely. that all of a sudden a rhythm appears out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he has lots of other ones, too. I mean, one of my favorite of his pieces, which is like piano and snare drums, where the piano is playing and the snare drums are tuned and they're all around the room. And every now and then it'll like vibrate the snare drums in different ways. It's really just incredible. But that's basically what he does, you know? And like, I think, you know, this comes back to the notation thing, right? Is that like, since notating, like I can't just sit down, I'm not Wolfgang Riem, I can't sit down and just write notes, right? It just doesn't happen. So like, but I can sit down and like focus on this sound for a long time and like try to figure out, okay, what is the sound of the piece? And then when you do that, you like end up, looking inside the sound to find this like really special spot and when you found it that's the piece and usually in in most pieces on the album there's something there's a lot of motion but the sound worlds are really contained so in machine language the what what was that moment that you found and how did you expand it well machine language actually has four sections so there's kind of three moments or maybe maybe even five. So this one's actually very sectional, sectional moments. But the main one is the se- second section of the piece, where you basically have a just intonation chord in the violins. Uh, it's a, a B flat spectrum, and uh, the bass clarinets. There's two bass clarinets, so the piece is two bass clarinets, two violins, uh, three percussion. One of them being a soloist and accordion and electronics. So what's happening in, is there's this big chord, this B flat chord, basically. Uh, and it's harmonics of the B flat series, and the the low note on the bass clarinet is B flat. And also, uh, Alex Minchak has a who's playing the higher, or not necessarily higher, but the other, the second bass clarinet part. His his bass clarinet doesn't have the B flat, so I could, I knew I could have this f- fifth in the bass, right? So B flat and and uh, F. So they have this big fifth, and then the violins have the harmonic series of that spectrum, and um, there are sine waves playing that are in tune with the harmonic series. And then the accordion is playing notes that are, I don't think they're the same notes as the violins, but kind of notes that uh, like even harmonics that kind of tend to be closer to the, the equal temperament tuning. Yeah. Um, and then the violins are doubling the sine waves, but what they do is they start in tune and then they slowly go out of tune. So that it goes from being this like in tune chord. If you, if you play like different sections of the chord, you hear like, this like dramatic change of timbre uh, with them moving like an eighth tone because it goes from being in tune to being out of tune in various ways. And then on top of that, you basically have this percussion part that's just like a ripoff of like a Phil Collins drum fill. It was like one, two, three, four, five. You know, that's it. That's the whole thing. It just goes over and over and over again. You got, you got Phil Collins. I got maybe in the expression, the beginning, like Zanakis. Oh yeah, maybe, well, the, uh, may, maybe just because it was just all. Well, the beginning is yeah. totally Raban, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. for three people instead of instead of. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I'm just ripping off Zanakis there, but like I that love Zanakis. Enough, Actually, you know, part of that. the piece came out of uh, a conversation I had with Nathan Davis, where he had gone. Uh, I'm not going to name the school, but he'd gone to a school and, and played a bunch of music, and he's a percussionist, and he's like, I didn't hit a single thing over the three-day uh, residency. And he's like, I basically just went home and played Zanakis. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I want people to beat the crap out of percussion. I want the percussionists to be hitting the shit out of their instruments. And like, I have this guy, Ian Antonio, who can basically hit the percussion harder than anyone I know, any other like orchestral percussionist I know, that comes out of his years playing with Z's. And I just love how he hits 
the percussions. So I wanted to have him play, and he also can play super fast and can just play constantly. So I wanted him to have this like sequ- this really fast five note sequence that he plays on top of this big beautiful drone. It also comes out of you know like probably one of my favorite pieces of all time is Spaceship from Einstein on the Beach. I love it. Phil Glass, it's amazing. But I think a lot of people who take from that scene take the wrong thing. Like they take the harmony. And the harmony is not that interesting, but what's interesting is the repetition. And like, and actually it's not strict repetition. There's all this change in it. And so um, basically like in rehearsals for that, Alex Minchek said, hey Sam, this is the hardest whole note music I've ever played because like it changes meter every bar because that five note phrase is being stretched and squished all the time. But you still just hear it as a five note phrase. So it's like hopefully this like one monolith that's really interesting.
the way you just described it, mm-hmm. especially going back to the you, you describing the fifths and the bass clarinet, how much of that was? I mean, it's very, it's very Columbia esque. I'm just gonna say, like, sure, yeah. And yeah. I think what's funny is like, I mean, how can you? It's very difficult if you want to write harmony. I mean, I don't want it to just be clusters, but I want it to be interesting. You kind of have like you have to think about the harmonic series, right? So yeah, it's totally it's totally spectral, right? But, but like, is that really is it really this monolith of truth that people have to deal with, or is it just no? I mean, I guess it like scientifically, yeah, you could make an argument that this is the way nature works. So you kind of have to even even if you're not thinking about it, you're dealing with it in a way. Sometimes I there's feel all like kinds people of other, like bow to it. You know? Sure, there's all kinds of other harmonies in the piece, like the middle section where the percussionists are in uh, unison on the woodblocks, and there's all these chords going on on top in the bass clarinets and accordion. Those have nothing to do with the harmonic series. They're just clusters. But the harmonic series also, it doesn't lie. I mean, that's it's there. for It's there. It, it exists. And so, so you kind of have to, you have to, even if you're not going to use it, like you could at times use it. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, it's very Columbia, but I don't think you would say that this sounds like Grise or Mirai in any no, way. So there's also one of the things I find really frustrating with that mentality, which actually comes at um, a lot of the Columbia people a lot is like, well, and in fact, like they what, have it or people project that people onto project them. that onto it, yeah. onto it is that um, like I just did shit. like you just did, but yeah. that's fine. I mean, I like I totally understand it. But but what what it is is that like there's this language that came out of spectralism. And there's two things that came out of it. There's this focus on the harmonic series, and then there's the gestural language of Tristan Marai and Gerard Brise. Yes, and those two things are very different. And so what I see coming out of most people who come out of that la- that world have this gestural language that is basically Tristan Marai's and, and Gerard Grise's gestural language. That's just superficial. Superficial yeah. swirls and swoops. It's totally yeah. superficial. But you can do things with that, that the uh, idea of the harmonic series that have nothing to do with that and then your music doesn't sound anything like their music. So um, I feel like I learned a ton from Tristan when he was here, but I wouldn't say that my music sounds anything like his. No, um, I mean, people are going to hear that. When did you start thinking this way? I actually started thinking about this way when I was in Texas because with in a computer, you can pretty easily pitch shift sounds, right? And so some of the effects that I have in my live processing rig come out of, I, I wrote them when I was in Texas. And so, I mean, they're eight, 10 years old. But when you pitch shift a sound and you pitch shift it up randomly, like, random notes between a uh, unison and an octave basically sounds like it's always going to sound like a cluster. If you pitch shift it harmonically and then the player moves around different notes, there's something that comes out that's different. That is, I'd say beautiful that you can't get when you just randomly shift things. So I've been doing that. Yeah. Basically since, you know, for eight or, eight or so years and thinking that way, it's also like, you know, it's very natural for you to think that way with you're dealing with numbers because you're dealing with whole integer ratios. So like if you have a, a note and you multiply it by nine over eight, you get a major second, but you get a just tuned date, a major second. And it's actually much easier to do that math than it is to do equal temperament math, which uh, involves logarithms and um, lots of, you know, it's more difficult on the computer and more difficult on your coding and more difficult on your brain. So it comes pretty naturally when you're dealing with programming. How much of this piece was coding? Okay, I mean, take me through the, like, do you sit down at a computer? Well, that matters. Uh, with machine language, there's not much that's coding, which is funny because that's the title. 
with machine language, but the computer plays, the computer is my instrument. So figuring out how to get the sounds that I can get with the computer onto the page is, is, is the challenge. So, so actually what I did was I figured out this chord that I liked and I used sine waves to get that chord. Um, and then I recorded my friend, Carrie Malinay. She can do just intonation violin stuff. So I recorded her playing those notes on the violin. Uh, and then I got my friend, uh, Ian Monroe to, uh, sit down with the accordion and find the chord and the right voicing in the accordion that sounded best with that chord with the violins and the sine waves. So while I didn't do any programming for this piece, uh, it's, it was all, you know, studio stuff, recording the stuff and sequencing it and then figuring out how to notate that. I actually go in that direction now too, like, or just collecting, collecting samples and then mixing them and everything like that just to get the right, you know, just to get the right voice and everything with act the actual instruments, not just like plunking a chord at a piano and imagining it. But I didn't used to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to, it used to be hardcore, just like piano playing and then thinking. And I'm glad I'm doing it the way now, but I almost don't feel like a composer anymore. Now that I feel like a manager. There's like a vision and I'm pragmatically finding my way towards that vision, but at the same time I'm using the people totally, who yeah. I know are going to perform it or I'm using people who I can trust enough to know that whatever their skill is is going to transfer on to someone else with the same instrument. And it's like the same thing. Like I'm like I manage it, I figure out the best way to do it, and then maybe the last month of a three or four month process is just putting down notes on a page like a composer. Sure. I don't think that has ever been different. You know, I mean, like if you look at like the queen of the night aria, right? Like it's totally unique sound world, but that comes out of Mozart knowing this soprano and meeting with the soprano and her being like, Oh, I can do this thing. And he's like, Oh, okay. I'm going to write that. No, I don't think it's any different. Like, sure, he didn't have like a Zoom recorder, but I don't think it's any different for him than us. I think his brain was a Zoom recorder. (laughs) Absolutely. Bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, I I mean, I don't see it as as a problem. And and also, like, you know, like one of my favorite examples of this is Messian. Like, Messian, like, it doesn't matter what the piece is for. It sounds like a French organ because... He yeah, played a French organ, like the guy, yeah. you know. So like, it, it's voiced in these like weird chord inversions that like you wouldn't play unless you're playing an organ. And I think that the reason why it sounds like Messian was because he he was able to recognize that and recognize that that's what sounded like him. Like I'm pretty sure at some point, like he could have been like, oh, I'm not going to write these chords in the winds, but he probably was like, oh, that's what makes my music sound like me. But people don't have that conception of what a. That's not what I don't think the layperson thinks. That's what a composer does. What do you mean? You know, I think they think of the guy sitting down at a desk or sitting down on the piano and working like that. And it's just the beauty of his exact imagination that can put these things together. But I also think that most people, I mean, like you said, you said that you work the same way I do, but not all but my It took me a while to get way. there. And sure. that's because I thought that's not what a composer did. Sure. But the, yeah. I, I don't see why that's not what a composer does. And also, in the end, that's my instrument, right? So like, that's how I'm going to write music. And it's going to inform the music just like somebody who's a really good pianist is going to inform their music or somebody who's a really good violinist is going to inform their music. You know, I mean, like Schoenberg was a violinist, right? He wasn't a pianist. So like you hear his music and it sounds like violin music. And I think that that's, that's cool. And so maybe our music is going to sound like computer music, which is great. Do you think your music has any gaps because of what your instrument is? Probably um, not because your absolutely. instrument is you know, you're, you're <laughs> also, but since your instrument is a computer, that means unlike the piano, it's capable of eating up any other sound 
Sure. And I spinning mean, it back out. I think I think the gaps exist more in my own ability to deal with the information, not the computers. You know, just personal faults. But I also because I use the computer to overcome those faults. So yeah. I don't think it's the computer's fault. But then there's other pieces like on the on on this album, the Lyra, for instance, my str- string quartet. And the, basically the way I wrote Lyra was I wrote a computer program that um, could play all of the harmonics on all of the strings of uh, of a string quartet. And then I just moved the harmonics around and like found, okay, the 11th harmonic on that string plus the 7th harmonic on that string plus the 5th harmonic on that string sounds awesome. And so like that was a pretty fun way of not actually going into the world and sampling people, but still using it as the instrument. Well, you know, I think that's a good place to leave it. We've been talking for like an hour and a half. Whoa. So uh, thank you for doing this. No, thanks for having me. It's great.